everybody to another day of the Luke Beasley Show. It is great to be with you. We are going to waste no time at the top of the show because we've got to jump into some breaking news uh, right now. Herschel Walker, this is all coming out right now as we're recording this, uh, wild stuff, but he is now being alleged to have, by another woman, pressured her into getting an abortion many years ago. So just to be clear, this is not me super late to the party about the other story. Mm. That already happened. We already discussed this. Just today, another woman has come out, given a press conference, her lawyer did, and then she zoomed into it to protect her identity and is alleging that not only is he even more of a hypocrite with him, you know, wanting to get abortions until he wants to run for Senate and then pretending like he's the most anti-abortion person ever, which again, I think people should have the right to get abortion, but he doesn't. He's trying to take those rights away. Uh, but it makes it even worse that um, she's talking about she didn't want to get the abortion. She felt horrible about it and at one point ran out of the clinic in tears because she felt so traumatized and didn't want to get an abortion, but he pressured her into it and made her go through with it. After that, she had to cut ties. She couldn't even you know, see him ever again because of how traumatic it was for her. So we'll get into all those details. I'll try to walk through as best I can again, even though this is breaking in, maybe more information will come out later. But first, let's let her kind of give the key moment of the abortion um, in this press conference. Again, the camera is on her lawyer, but she is zooming in to protect her face identity, but she is using her voice. After discussing the pregnancy with Herschel several times, he encouraged me to have an abortion and gave me the money to do so. I went to a clinic in Dallas, but I simply couldn't go through with it. I left the clinic in tears. When I told Herschel what had happened, he was upset and said that he was going to go back with me to the clinic the next day for me to have the abortion. He then drove me to the clinic the following day and waited for hours in the parking lot until I came out. He then drove me to get medication. Um, okay, so with that in mind, here's kind of the story that is told by this lawyer. If you want to go watch the press conference, um, we'll link it in the description for our YouTube viewers and they go through each aspect They show all of the different proof of this relationship that they had all of the love letters. He sent her uh, Photos that I guess she took of him in hotel rooms and all this stuff verifying that there indeed was this affair going on and I use that word because uh, what was also revealed is this was all happening the woman coming out now is a person he was cheating with on oh his my. wife yes like when you think that it literally can't get any worse absolutely keep comes in. absolutely so he was married and for six years he was also carrying on a relationship um with this individual and one of the kind of disgusting parts about this that is not related to the abortion but was documented in this telling of their relationship is how he was so manipulative of her and saying time after time, I'm about to leave my wife, we're about to get divorced, I wanna be with you, I'm in love with you, uh, just to keep her on for six years. And she said, you know, the whole kind of journey, 
she was waiting to spend the rest of her life with Herschel Walker and he just kept leading her on and of course never ended up fulfilling the promise he kept making to her did you say six years gross and manipulative yeah six years he was having an affair for six years um that's how long the relationship went on and he was married to his wife during that time yeah wow so um with that being said the next part of it that i found very interesting this press conference watched the whole thing right before we went live today and uh the woman who's speaking out they're keeping her name private because you know the threats that would go her way uh, if she revealed her name, but one of the key points was she's actually a Trump supporter, or at least she admitted to voting for Trump both elections. Yet she feels so disgusted by the lies that are being told by Herschel Walker that she feels like she has to speak out. So the reason that I think that's an interesting detail is because it's going to make it a little bit harder for the MAGA crowd to pretend this is just some liberal fake, you know, fraudster or even an actual real ex-girlfriend but lying about the abortion to take down Herschel Walker because they hate Republicans and they mm. love Raphael Warnock. She just in 2020 voted for Donald Trump, but still just can't even take it with Herschel Walker's lies. And uh, as highlighted, and one of the things that kind of pushed her over the edge was um, Herschel Walker denied one of the letters being accurate that, she, that he sent to a different woman he got paid to get an abortion. Uh, and one of the reasons he said it wasn't legitimate is he said, I never signed just H at the end of cards like that or at end of letters. And she was annoyed by that because all these letters that she's held on to have signed at the end of it just an H from Herschel Walker. They even played a voicemail of him calling her to tell her he loved her um, and just so many things. And she even broke down when she was telling this story. Again, you can watch the full press conference if you'd like. Link in the description. So. The saddest part of all of this, he's a massive hypocrite. We understand that. He's a really low character guy, clearly, but he is tied pretty much in the polling right now, the polling averages, and could very well still win this Georgia race. We saw the news broke and everyone assumed, okay, we're going to see a huge shift in the polls and Raphael Warnock's going to win easily, but that isn't the case. And whether it's because Republicans hate Democrats that much or um, don't care as much about abortion as they say or think just hey i only care about the pragmatics of he would vote a pro-life position in the senate whatever the reasons are it's incredible and in being shown out by this story that a lot of these principles people pretended to hold they don't really and when it comes down to it they'll throw it out the door if it helps them in the moment politically so wild stuff happening and um what are we gonna do people this is the bizarre political climate we're in. Herschel Walker now being revealed or is being alleged with some good evidence behind it that he paid and pressured another woman to get an abortion, even though he pretends to be the most pro-life person in all of the world. More developments in the Georgia grand jury investigation that's looking into Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election in that state. Of course, the uh, now notorious phone call where he asks for 11,780 votes. Just find them for me. Come on. Uh, who needs a democracy? And um, uh, the most recent development is that his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, a South Carolina judge ruled today that he's going to have to testify in front of the um, grand jury, which is good. 
and will hopefully yield some interesting information. Reading from CNN, a South Carolina judge on Wednesday ruled that former, uh, former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows must appear for testimony in the Atlanta area grand jury 2020 election meddling investigation. Quote, I am going to find that the witness is material and necessary to the investigation and that the state of Georgia is assuring not to cause undue hardship to him. Judge Edward Miller, who sits on the court of common pleas in Pickens County, South Carolina, said at the end of a hearing Wednesday morning. So as far as staff members or former staff members go around a president, um, the chief of staff is probably one of the people who knew the absolute most about what was going on um, day to day. And so I do think, as the judge also agrees, that Mark Meadows is a person that actually has to go in front of the grand jury because he could have crucial information um, to this investigation. And I want to remind you, one of the clips we played when we went over a recent January 6th select committee hearing what kind of is the climax of all of this, uh, um, what this investigation is kind of looking into and the best example of this being manifested in Trump's actions that at least we were privy to. And of course it is that phone call where he's pressuring Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes. But to be clear, this isn't all of it. There was many attempts by people around Trump to specifically meddle in the Georgia uh, election, but this is kind of the most um, obvious and overt attempt by Trump. And um, again, they played this during a January 6th select committee hearing. Let me just get you pulled up for everyone to watch and listen to. Take a look. What I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Look, we need only 11,000 votes. We have far more than that as it stands now. We'll have more and more. So what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. <laughs> it's like a mob boss. Fellas, what are we going to do? I just need 11,780 votes. Uh, you can't do that. <laughs> the president of the United States, at least in a stable democracy, should not be calling an election official of a state he lost in and saying, listen, I don't have any legitimate evidence to provide you, but it's just 11,780 votes. Come on, you can just, find just give it. it to me. It's only 11,000. How hard could it actually uh, be? Really incredible. So Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former Chief of Staff, is going to have to be involved in that. We saw too, Lindsey Graham, there was a temporary halt. Um, but he seems like he's also going to have to be forced to testify as well. And maybe we'll see justice be served in this case. I have a moment from Fox News to take a look at with you. And the reason I found it interesting is one of the hosts who is typically definitely very different from me politically and conservative, but more able to see reason than some of the other hosts. <laughs> And he uh, made a point, and I actually disagree with some of why he's bringing this up, but then agree with the point in a more meta sense, if that makes sense. Odd setup to the story, but take a look, and then we'll discuss. So, like, they're, they're, yeah, they're right. on, on 
inflation, they keep saying that Republicans are going to make it worse and everyone else in the world has it just as bad as we do. That's that's not talking talking about that. They actually change the policy. I I think the most important person in the, uh, the, the failure of the Democratic Party is George Floyd. I think that once he was murdered, the, uh, the, the country went crazy with defund the police and everything else. So the Democrats led the charge, but very, very unrealistic. Not the country, government. though, just a, just a just part a of the country. country. The, not you know, even the half. Black Lives yeah. Matter, the organization, <laughs> right. not the movement. And it- okay, so I think the country going crazy with defund the police has been overstated. And that's the part I disagree with. But the failure of the response to George Floyd's murder was, uh, I don't mean in a legal sense, the, um, you know, Derek Chauvin got justice here. He was sent to prison, which is good for first degree murder. But the uh, response politically and culturally to that was not at all achieving what we could have if we had maximized the energy and momentum of that moment. So you remember in 2020, there were historic protests, mass demonstrations, both against what happened to him and other instances like it, as well as calling for change within the way we do policing. And one of the solutions that people put forward was defund the police, which I've talked about as being a very um, not effective solution to put forward. And actually the way we're going to properly change the policing in America is very different than decreasing the budget. And of course, there's been misconceptions about what some people mean by that. Actually, we just want to reallocate and give some of the duties of police officers to mental health professionals and interesting conversations there. But in a general sense, the defund the police kind of slogan, I do think, took away from the movement and was an oversimplified and not great solution to that problem. But what ended up happening, and this is not to blame on just that one slogan, this is to blame uh, on our political leaders, we didn't actually get any of the real solutions or reforms that were being put forward in that moment subsequent to it, right? The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was one of the things put forward and it didn't get passed in the Senate, it did get passed in the House. And all of these other solutions about how we could reform our policing so that it's less discriminatory so that they don't have the ability to do the things they do without getting held accountable. Um, And we didn't really get any action legislatively on a federal level on those things. And that's very heartbreaking. And I think it is a profound failure of that moment because very rarely do you have this amount of people step up and say, we're fed up with what's going on right now in a particular system in our country. And so much so that we're going to protest day after day. That's a rare um, political event. And it happened. And we had all these promises made by our political leaders and nothing actually got done. Nothing actually happened. And the biggest institution or organization to blame for that or collection of individuals is the Republican Party, because if more of the Senate was Democrats, you would have seen reform on these things. They did get it passed in the House, which, of course, is more democratic. So very upsetting. And I think it's another reminder about why we need better leaders, better representatives um, in the federal government who actually listen to the outcries of people. And what's a better example or manifestation of an outcry than mass historic level protests? Um, And yet even that didn't budge some people who are supposed to represent us. 
very sad. Pramila Jayapal, uh, congresswoman and uh, head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, had kind of an awkward little moment occur where it seems the Congressional Progressive Caucus sent a letter to the Biden administration, to Joe Biden, saying that um, we need to change the approach on Ukraine and push Ukraine into diplomacy with Russia. And instantly, Pramila Jayapal came out and said, oh, we're withdrawing that letter. Sorry, that was sent out by a staffer or something like that. And it was an awkward interaction, but it kind of highlights a little bit of the Ukraine-related political reality going on right now that is fascinating and needs to be paid more attention to. And what I mean by that is there's people in good faith saying, can we make sure that Ukraine is being diplomatic, but seeming to misunderstand the reality of the war right now, where if you're saying that the United States is doing something so wrong right now because we're just giving aid to them but not forcing them into diplomacy, it seems like you're missing the fact that Putin, since the very beginning, has made clear he's not interested at all in diplomacy. If you remember at the beginning, Zelensky's um, administration or government made clear we're open to peace talks. And they sent representatives to meet with Russian representatives, and there was no serious proposal put forward time and time again. So at this point, it's clear Putin is not interested in coming to some reasonable diplomatic solution. So I've made clear in a recent live stream, especially when we went through all of this and looked at different people and why they were wrong, um, that bringing that up, while I think it can come from a good place, is distracting from the reality of the situation in such a way that I think it's very counterproductive and an incorrect analysis on the situation where, oh, we need, um, we're doing something so wrong, we're just trying to fuel the war machine by chucking money at Ukraine and that's what it's really about. No, in this situation, what we should be doing is actually exactly what we're doing, which is send as much aid as we can to try to help Ukraine stand strong. And then there's down the road conversations about, okay, if Ukraine's able to take back everything they had a year ago or whatever before this war started, uh, how far are they going to go? Are they going to try to take back Crimea? What is it? That's a fair conversation to have. But when looking at the reality right now, it's a little odd or dishonest to pretend that there's some huge wrongdoing on the part of Ukraine or the United States in not being diplomatic when Putin is clearly not interested in that. So with that being said, uh, here's the actual news that I'm reporting on. Reading from media, Politico reported on Tuesday that Representative Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, quote, personally approved the release of a controversial letter on Monday calling for the Biden administration to alter its approach to Ukraine and negotiate with Russia. Jayapal withdrew the letter on Tuesday after a fierce backlash and blamed the letter's release on a staffer. Um, so then here they show the uh, statement made by chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, where she makes clear the reason, I think this is perfectly um, reasonable of an articulation from her, that they decided to withdraw the letter is because the way it was being perceived by the public or by other political figures was uh, being kind of conflated was the word she used with Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader, head of the Republicans in the House, is recent actions or statements about how we may have to cut Ukraine aid, we may have to stop doing that if we get into the majority in the House. And she is feeling like, okay, while I do want the Biden administration to put diplomacy as the top priority, 
I also recognize it was kind of bad timing to put the statement out because um, it seems like I'm almost bolstering the message of Kevin McCarthy that we're going overboard with aid when that really isn't the reality. So interesting dynamic playing out there. Um, I know some people on the left, a lot of people on the left, actually disagree with my take on this, even though usually we're on board with similar policy goals and think that maybe we're overdoing it with Ukraine aid. Whereas, as I've articulated, this is one of those moments where we really got to go as much as we possibly can to defend Ukraine in this situation. I've gotten into more details, won't do that here, but huge ramifications in the future based on how we act now. Interesting. Uh, one of the candidates, the Republican candidate for governor um, in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, is an interesting dude, we'll say. But the moment that I have to take a look at now, it doesn't look like he has a chance of winning, so that's good, or doesn't have a good chance of winning. Everyone always has a chance of winning. But um, the moment I want to look at now is he went on this lady's show, Wendy Bell, I guess is her name, and a very telling moment occurred where not only is she freaking me out with the way that she is all on her feet during this <laughs> interview, I never understand why people stand during um, like radio type settings. Just get a chair and sit down. Stop pacing around and stuff. But with that being set aside, she clearly lays out exactly what the line is going to be in this midterm that we're in the middle of about it being stolen. So. The only way that they won't claim it's stolen, they probably will even say that it was attempted to be stolen, is if Republicans sweep. Now, if they don't, if the Democrats keep the House or Senate or God forbid both, we're going to hear from Republicans that it was all stolen. This is 2020 all over again and they won't provide any evidence, but they'll do a bunch of screaming and yeah, crying. Because about if, it. if they don't win, then it was rigged. As simple of course, as that. 100 um, percent. How could there be any other possible outcome? <laughs> With that being said, take a look at this bizarre moment with Doug Mastriano. The safety, the economic well-being of our nation is now hinged in the balance on this one vote on 8 October. Yeah, and this is what scares me. Newsmax, I just saw, I alert came off on my phone saying that. Can you imagine having Newsmax <laughs> Can you, alerts coming on your phone? Ooh, Newsmax has my verify, uh, verified news. Mm. Democrats lead in the early voting. We've got to put an end to this crap. It's got to be election day, not election months, not election weeks. It's got to be election day. And I think anybody with a functioning brain cell knows that if it's beyond election day, it's called cheating for the left, period. Yeah, I don't know how it's gone from, you know, election day to, and then it was a couple weeks at it, now it's like five or six weeks. You're just asking for trouble. I mean, does it really need to be so long? I mean, my focus is going to be obviously on election integrity of, of the top three issues we're going to face, obviously crime, uh, our economy, and then election integrity. Uh, we're going to start off with voter ID. We, the General Assembly, we've already begun that process here, so there'll be a referendum next May for the people to decide on that. Then we need to look at She is a trip. <laughs> Dude, she's getting into it. Look at I, I love that for her, um, except for that she hates democracy. But um, <laughs> okay, so she said that you don't, anyone who has one single functioning brain cell understands why it's just cheating for the left to have early voting. And then goes on to not explain at all why that's the case. Why? Why would it be wrong to, with the same election process, just open up more time for people to vote? Because we understand 
in a country our size and in certain geographical locations where there's just a lot of population saturation, it's going to be pretty difficult for everyone to cast their vote on the exact same day. Mm, and for sure. what uh, Republicans are starting to understand or starting have understood for a very long time <laughs> is in the country as it currently is politically tilted, it is best for them to restrict people's ability to vote because um, oftentimes, almost universally, when they do that, the places that are targeted are areas they know are gonna vote more blue. So they try to make it more difficult for those in blue areas to vote. Um, and that leaves the heavily Republican areas the only ones that are able to really vote effectively um, or have a very easy time. Now, this is proven in the data, but also anecdotally from my own experience, when I have voted in different spaces, you can tell a difference between some of them are like you walk in barely any line easy peasy some of them um, are incredibly difficult and you can see experiences i haven't had but others do where there's just lines around the building um, oftentimes in democratic black and brown communities that are targeted there and so that's what she's on board with cut out early voting cut out mail-in voting the only voting that can happen is on election day and I would be for that if you could prove to me that since early voting has been expanded, since mail-in voting has been expanded, there's proof, there's evidence of it being less secure or there being um, significant more fraud. But you can't. So all you're saying, now they would think that they could, but they couldn't. Um, so all they're really saying is we need to needlessly make it more difficult for people to vote, which to me makes absolutely no sense. What I've said time and time again is here's my policy on voting. Make it as easy and accessible as possible up until you realize there's some threat of it becoming less secure. And what we've seen is with our current system as it's laid out, it's incredibly secure. We talked about previously the analysis that was done in Arizona, where out of 2.5 million votes, 100 were marked as possibly questionable. That's incredibly secure and that has no chance of swaying any election. And so why not make it easier for people to do what is their right, which is to vote. Uh, but they disagree with that. And she thinks that you have no functioning brain cells for believing in <laughs> <laughs> democracy. John Fetterman, Democrat running for Senate in Pennsylvania, faced off with Mehmet Oz or more well-known Dr. Oz in their senatorial debate. And I mean, it was expected John Fetterman recently had a stroke, and so it was expected he was going to have a harder time communicating than normal. Um, and it's an attack line the Oz campaign has been using tirelessly. There we go, tirelessly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's kind of been exhausting because I am perfectly uh, on board with making clear it matters if you have the ability to think, process, and communicate issues. Mm. And that's why one of the reasons, one of the many, we criticize Herschel Walker, is he clearly has a very hard time understanding and being able to communicate or think about important issues. And so it's almost like Republicans try to make the same point about John Fetterman. Just so you know, after I'm done with this, we'll look at some clips from the debate. But what's interesting is as long as John Fetterman can continue to put out information revealing that 
it's his doctor's belief he'll be able to recover from this, then we understand, okay, he still has the ability to understand the issues. He uh, has spoken about them in depth, pre-stroke pre and post-stroke, and is, in my opinion, really good on a lot of these issues, but he also just had a stroke and it's gonna make things more difficult for him. So we're not even gonna look at any right-wing responses to this. I can't do that to my brain. We're only gonna look at debate. I can't do the whole, here's what you know Tucker Carlson said about John Fetterman, because it will give me uh, severe internal pain. Um, hearing the dishonesty, one of the points they made is because he had captioning, meaning behind the, ho uh, the moderators, they put the words the moderators were saying just so he could have an easier time with him still recovering from this medical event. Uh, and people are pretending that the captioning is to help him say things like delivering words to him. Nope, they kept cutting to cameras. All it was saying was what the moderator was saying. Uh, Cause that's one of the, you know, aftermath effects of the stroke he had. But with all that being said, you will notice he's having a harder time in this debate. It was clear, but he still had a pretty, you know, a good, he did a good job of still making some points despite all that, that were clearly kind of attacking Oz for areas he should be attacked for. Here's him just kind of at the top of the debate making clear that the elephant in the room, he had a stroke and it's gonna make his debate performance a little lower than normal. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke, he's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm gonna keep coming back up. And this campaign is all about, to me, is about fighting for everyone in Pennsylvania that ever got knocked down, that needs to get back up and fighting for all forgotten communities all across Pennsylvania that also got knocked down. Okay, and again, I wanna say, it's perfectly fair, even if you feel bad for someone, to not feel fully comfortable with them being in a really important position if you think they don't have the mental capacity to do so, but it seems to be the case with John Vetterman, setting aside why we believe Dr. Oz would be a bad uh, senator, just talking about Vetterman, that his doctor and the medical professionals around him believe he'll be able to recover from these uh, effects and symptoms. And then, next moment, he got asked about being transparent with the information about his stroke, and he said, the way that I'm being transparent is showing up today and showing you what the raw look of me in this moment is like. Uh, to me, for transparency is about showing up. I'm here today to have a debate. I have, you know, spe speeches in front of 3,000 people in Montgomery County, you know, all across Pennsylvania, big, big crowds. You know, I believe if my doctor believes that I'm fit to serve, and, and that's what I believe is appropriate. And now with two weeks before the election, you know, I have run a campaign and I've been very transparent about being very open about the fact we're in use captioning. And I believe that again, my doctors, the real doctors that I believe in, they all believe that I'm ready to be served. Follow okay. Um, interesting there. Next moment to take a look at he calls out Dr. Oz for his extravagant wealth and how he probably is a little out of touch with the needs of working people. But before we play this, I will say, I think you gotta explain, um, and this is separate from this specific debate, I'm just saying generally, why someone being out of touch is affecting their policy positions. Because I don't necessarily think someone who's happened to be successful can also wanna serve properly. But a lot of the Republicans we see who are very wealthy also have policies that would just benefit the wealthy. So you gotta 
lean into that and say, not only is he likely out of touch because he's really wealthy, also look at his policies that are just benefiting people like him. Um, but with that being said, here's this moment. No, here's what I think we have to fight about inflation here right now. That's what we need to fight about inflation, you know, right now because it's a tax on working families, you know. And Dr. Oz can't possibly understand what that is like, you know. He has 10 gigantic mansions, you know. He, we, we must push back against corporate greed. We must make sure they're all... So the 10 gigantic mansions is that being highlighted again you can see that's not the normal john fetterman um that's not his uh kind of baseline sharpness in a different setting again still recovering from a stroke um and then mimit oz makes clear what his stance on abortion is which is i think the decision should be between you your doctor and the actual wording he used was local political leaders Ugh. What? You say that you're pro-life, but you do support abortion exceptions in the cases of rape, incest, and to protect the life of the mother. Aside from those three exceptions, should abortion be banned in America? 60 seconds. There should not be involvement from the federal government in how states decide their okay. abortion decisions. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult t conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can I love that so much. Okay, first off, it's funny because it's kind of a um, uh, weird taking the line of it should just be you, your loved ones, your doctor, and some people say, and your faith in the room when you make that decision, and adding, and local political leaders. <laughs> your mayor gets to make that decision with you. But uh, on top of it, it so clearly highlights to me the weird ahistorical understanding of the state's rights conversation, where he says, you know, I think that we should allow democracy, I guess on a local level, but not a federal level, to, however he words it, do what it's done in thriving so beautifully. Wait, wait, wait. But wasn't there a very prominent states' rights argument about keeping people as slaves? I don't feel like just saying democracy has always worked perfectly um, on a local level to get mm. us the best outcomes. No, sometimes we got to intervene on the federal level, as we saw um, with the Civil War. And so a kind of odd little point there from him in trying to nicely wrap up in a nice package his pretty um, out of touch and bad stance. Uh, your political leader. Your, your political leaders. You, your doctor, your mother, and <clears throat> the lieutenant governor gets to be in the room with you. That's good. When he made that decision. And then I like this little attack from Fetterman where he says, because Oz keeps trying to say, you're Bernie Sanders, you supported Bernie Sanders, he uh, makes a good little jab based on that. Direct patients to do. Thank you. Mr. Fetterman, he accused you of socialized medicine, supporting socialized medicine. What is your response? Yeah. First of all, he accused you of supporting socialized medicine. You'll see John Fetterman denies that, but then goes on to explain that he is for universal health care, which is kind of odd. But I will say, if someone accuses you of socialized medicine, just lean into it. A hundred percent. I think uh, we shouldn't allow the insurance industry to now socialized medicine might confuse people and thinking that the healthcare industry might be nationalized, but specifying, well, I don't care about what he just said, but let me 
explain to you, this is what I want. I want to take out the insurance industry, have the government fill that role so that you don't get price gouged. You get all the healthcare needs you want. You still have the same doctors you want because the healthcare industry isn't being touched, but the insurance industry is being taken away, saving you money um, and getting you better health outcomes. Obviously, I think that would be the ideal way to go, but here's how Fetterman did it. Again, again, it's the Oz rule. He's on TV and he's lying. I never, so I, I never supported any of that thing. You know, he keeps talking about Bernie, Bernie Sanders. You know, three years, three years ago, he was on his show and he hugged him and he said, "I love this guy." You know what? Why don't you pretend that you you live in Vermont instead of Pennsylvania and run against Bernie Sanders? Because all you can do is talk. <laughs> so the reason why that's funny is it's pretty clear now that Oz just temporarily. Uh, made himself a Pennsylvania resident to run for Senate, even though he's in New Jersey um, as his actual home. And so he's been getting attacks for, you don't actually have any connection to the state of Pennsylvania. You're just wanting to get in power here um, or get in power in Washington representing here. And so he's saying, hey, maybe you should go and pretend to be a Vermont resident so that you can run against Bernie Sanders, which I like that. That was pretty good. Uh, Anytime someone brings up someone else in a debate over and over, you know, you supported Biden, you supported Biden, you supported Bernie Sanders. It is a good line to go, listen, you're talking to me. Why do you keep bringing up this other person? Um, I think. Next moment here was kind of a, a really emotionally tugging moment for me where he talks about the intention that we should have behind our immigration policy. I believe that uh, a secure border is can be compatible with compassion. I believe we need a comprehensive and bipartisan solution for immigration. That, that's what I believe. I don't ever recall in the Statue of Liberty did they say, you know, you know, take our tired huddle masses and put them on a bus. I believe that. Right. So he's talking about the migrant stunts we've seen where they throw on a bus and take them either to Vice President Kamala Harris's residence, drop them off there or Martha's Vineyard or wherever without actually giving them the proper help. And it's interesting because as he said, we okay, everyone almost agrees in the United States, we're not gonna have an open border. Yes, we get that. You can keep screaming, we have an open border, we don't. And you can keep screaming, that's what the, the Democratic Party wants, and we don't, okay? We do want a border, we do want a legal process. Mm. Where we differ is we don't think there's um, some inhuman nature to the people coming across that we need to call it an invasion. And as Tucker Carlson, the most prominent media figure on the right said, um, something like the, makes our communities dirty and poor. And that's not how we see these people. We see primarily uh, people pursuing a better life. And so what we want to do is improve our legal system so that they can be better uh, uh kind of brought through a process that both protects the interests of the United States while also treating these individuals like humans and trying to respect their pursuit for a better life. And so uh, in that little moment, he highlights how the, the Statue of Liberty on it has an incredible um, homage to the United States' unique acceptance of immigrants and how that's what built the country that we live in and this complete uh, lack of remembrance by most people on the right of that fact is very interesting and a little bit upsetting. And I do think if we have the proper legal process, we're not saying open up the gates to a lot. We're saying create a good legal process so people can come in and make our country better <coughs> Excuse um, me. as has largely been done. 
And then here's Oz saying he would vote for Trump if he was the 2024 Republican nominee. Mr. Oz, uh, Donald Trump has supported you. He has endorsed you. Why won't you fully commit to supporting him in 2024? Oh, I do. I would support Donald Trump if he decided to run for president. All right. But this is bigger than one candidate. Okay. I think we knew that already. But I do like with all of the political damage that has been done to Donald Trump, any of these individuals that are running in the Republican Party who have received an endorsement or whoever, you need to make clear to the voters that they're associated in that way. Here's part of Oz's closing statement where Fetterman yells out, you want to cut Social Security? I've talked to seniors worried their Social Security checks wouldn't go far enough with the raging inflation. I've talked to couples when I make their first down payment on a new house and they can't afford it anymore because of interest rates. I've talked to families. You want to cut Social Security. Mr. Fetterman, it's his turn. (laughs) So they got in a back and forth that was longer and more extensive about Medicare and Social Security. And Oz did what we see most Republicans do, which is deny that's what they want. But then we've reported on behind the scenes, the plotting in the Republican Party to do exactly that, which would be devastating. A really fascinating thing to tag on the end of this, John Fetterman's campaign raised a million dollars in the three hours after the Senate debate, which again, doesn't necessarily mean he's getting all these new supporters. Could just be people who were already his supporters wanting to throw in and being reminded by the debate to do so. But it is funny because uh, this is largely being painted as a really bad night for Fetterman, which you understand why it was clear the communication effects, especially if you watch the full debate um, of his stroke. And that's a stressful kind of experience to go through um, for him and then for people supporting him. But people are still clearly financially wanting to give to that campaign, which is a fascinating uh, note there. I have a heartbreaking story and detail to add on to what we talked about previously with this St. Louis high school shooting that occurred um, where a 19 year old went in with an AR style gun and shot up the school injuring, I think seven and then one teacher and one student got killed. We'll look at some of that in a second, but the kind of huge story to this that is almost unbelievable and heartbreaking, but also so honorable one of the teachers, the one who ended up dying, before the gunman could shoot students, stepped in front of, like you would see in uh, some story, mm. like a, this is a story, but I'm saying a fictional story, in front of her students, got shot and killed herself, but actually protected the lives of the students who were behind her. That's just absolutely incredible. It and, you know, many people can say that they can do that, but whenever it really comes down to it, the ability to just make that decision in the moment, putting your life before others' kids, that's amazing. Absolutely. And why we live in a country where this happens so often is disgusting, the reason for that, which is we don't have leaders who want to actively um, solve this problem very disproportionately within the Republican Party who value the distorted view they have the second amendment or uh the campaign contributions they get from the nra over the lives of people um and it's not to say that the only 
component of this is gun control. It's not. When people bring up mental health, that's absolutely something that needs to be focused on. All of these root causes of what brings people to do a tragedy like that is 100% something that needs to be focused on as well. But the thing that can most immediately cut back on and the variable that is so different in the United States than many other countries is the way that we handle guns. Um, and so every time an instance like this happens, you have to think about that because you can't just talk about what happened. You got to talk about how can we prevent like uh, things like this from happening in the future um, again and again. But here's a little bit from CBS. A teacher and a 16-year-old girl were killed Monday morning in a shooting inside St. Louis High School, authorities said. The gunman uh, was also killed in the shooting at Central Visual and Performing Arts High School, police said, and seven others were injured. At a news conference, police commissioner Michael Sack said injuries, the injuries range from gunshot wounds to shrapnel wounds. All seven injured victims were in stable condition as of Monday night. And then they write a little bit more about the specifics of this. Um... It seems like the police response to this was good, which is um, within the context of a horrible story, at least one good component of it, because we saw in Uvalde, that's not always the case. Mm. Um, but then Sachs said that lax gun laws make it more difficult for police to stop shootings. Quote, it's very easy to get guns, he told reporters. Quote, gun laws in Missouri are very broad and allow people to have weapons. They can carry openly down any street and there's really nothing we can do. If someone walks down Main Street with a rifle, we've got no cause uh, to go talk to them. So that makes it very challenging in an urban environment. So even um, this, let's see, the police commissioner, Michael Sack, is admitting to that guys, the lax gun laws here in Missouri make it very difficult for the police to even do their job, to even prevent things like this or be aware when one could be coming. And so, of course, there's a lot of details about the gunmen, the mental health problems, the whatever it is. But I've talked about on my show, I don't think focusing on the person who did the shooting, except to think about how we can prevent things in the future, is good. Because I do think when people are deranged in some way and there's tons of media coverage of all these different mass shootings and the person who did the shooting becomes kind of this weird anti-celebrity type figure, it drives them, it gives them the motivation to do that as their lash out, as their mental health kind of whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think if we did less coverage of the person who did the shooting and just focused on the victims, that would be a little bit more... Uh, good in these situations but heartbreaking stuff this teacher just being an absolute hero mm. in the midst of a horrible tragedy thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show uh we'll see you tomorrow